Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. In uh, Romans, Romans chapter 7, we're going to read the first six verses as we kick off today. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is, is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Uh, This is the word of uh, the Lord. So we're jumping back into Romans 7 today. We're in a large section of scripture. We're actually going to tackle the entire seventh chapter. That should take us about three and a half hours uh, due to the size of it. The kids workers would quit. We wouldn't actually do that. Uh, we're going to split this into pieces. That's why I read the first six verses. We'll talk a little bit, read a little bit more, talk a little bit more, uh, and, and we'll make our way through it. So uh, to remind us what is happening in the book of Romans, Paul has spent a lot of time writing to us about the amazing gift of salvation, how salvation is a free gift of God, uh, that by grace we are saved, meaning we do not merit it, we don't earn it, we don't set ourselves up into the position for God to look uh, favorably on us, we are saved by a gift. And this is a, a loving kindness from a good father towards humanity. But here's the thing that Paul has kind of dealt with and having us wrestle with. It's also perplexing in the same way to wrap our minds around not earning salvation. It's difficult to understand what does that mean and how do we live outside of earning anything. So how does it work to not earn anything in salvation, to not merit it or deserve it, but yet once you are saved, there is this call to live lives of holiness and and righteousness. How is it that the expectation to get into the fold of God can be so low? Like there's not a ton required of you, but just faith. But once we are in, the expectation seems to be different. It expects, it seems to be higher. No, no matter what moment of history you are in, this duality of low expectation, and then some more expectation can be uh, a little bit confusing to navigate. In Paul's day, this confusion was talked about uh, really in reference to the law. The law or the Torah is from the first five books of the Old Testament in the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that is where the law is found. And so it would open with kind of the Ten Commandments. That's the gateway uh, into the law. And then there's a whole lot more. It can be subdivided into three categories or types of laws that you'll see. There's the ceremonial law. That's the stuff about sacrifices and washing and and all of that. Luckily, we can see in Hebrews, we don't have to do that stuff anymore. Uh, There's the judicial law. That's for a certain group of people in a certain time. This is Israel in the Old Testament. That group of people doesn't really exist anymore because we are Israel. So a lot of that judicial law are, are not the things that we get hung up on. And then there's the moral laws. 
which apply to us very, very, very much still now and today. In total, there's 613 different laws in the Old Testament. That's quite a few to navigate. It was a ceremonial, is this judicial, is this moral? Because it, it doesn't tell you, and sometimes they're interlaced all together, but there's 613 different laws there. The problem was then, and kind of is still now, uh, in many ways, uh, God's people uh, are, are believers who think that their uh, ability to obey the law somehow presents them justified before God. The ability to externally conform, uh, to do the do's and to don't do the, the don'ts is the key to, to put yourself in a safe spot before a, a holy creator God who is sovereign over all creation. But then Paul blows this thinking up when he said, hey, you're saved by faith alone meaning not by what you do, by the law. You're you're not saved by how many laws uh, you you ace. And it's not uh, based on on a curve that your grandpa said or anything like that. And he pushes even further, uh, we're, we're not just not saved by the law, we're saved by faith alone. We're also not under the law. If our faith is in Christ for our salvation, we are now under grace, he says. So this Again, gets confusing, and uh, the people of God back then, and, and I think us now, can get a little bit confused. Okay, what do we do with this? So they asked back then, okay, if we're not under the law, if we're not under those 613 commandments anymore, can we sin like it's our job, YOLO? He says, no, no, that's not the, no, that's not the way that it works. They say, okay, okay. If we're not under the law, can we ignore holiness, just kind of do our best, be the, live our best life now, be the best type of people that we can? No, no, that, that's definitely still not what you're going to do. And so you say, okay, so Paul, the law doesn't save us, yet we can't throw it away. Exactly. That, that's exactly what I'm saying, which leaves many going, yeah, I don't get it then. Like, what do we use it for? If it doesn't save us and we're not under it, then why in the world do we still need it? And he talks about this extensively in this chapter. Paul sets out to show them that it's not that the law needs to be trashed or thrown away. Here's what needs to happen. The way that we relate to the law is what needs to change. And he uses the example of, of marriage to try and drive that point home. In those first verses, you're probably like, adultery and broken and covenant. What? He's trying to show us what he means. He's saying, okay, in marriage, that is a covenant just like the law. And the covenant of marriage is binding on a person until they die. It's a, it's, it's a covenant, it's a promise that they go into, and once you're into it, it's binding until you die. That's where we get the line, until death do us part. Uh, because a man and woman are bound to that covenant for as long as they have breath. Yes, uh, biblically, there's some other reasons that a covenant can be broken, infidelity, abandonment, abuse. That's not the point of what's going on here. The point is, uh, there's no such thing as no-fault divorce in the Bible. It doesn't exist. So if a person decides that they're tired or not living their best life with their spouse and go find another one, uh, the Bible says, no, you can't do that. That's actually committing adultery. Why? Because the covenant that you made still exists over you. You're you're bound to it. Did you die? No. Okay, it still exists. If a person's spouse does die, they say, okay, it's no longer binding to you. You can go remarry, not feel like you've done anything wrong. So Paul says, here's where we'll tie it together. Think of the covenant of the law like the covenant of marriage. 
We learned about this a whole lot in chapter 5 and chapter 6. A believer dies with Christ when they come into the family of God. This is what being in union with him looks like. This is the whole symbolism of what baptism is. The old me died. The old man or old woman is literally put to death, and a new person simultaneously is born again through Christ so that we may belong to another, so we may belong to God. This is... um, a new life that we live once we are saved. And Paul lists out, hey, the beauty of this new life, the old you dying and this new, new you coming to life is you can bear fruit in God in this new life instead of bearing fruit with sin, which led to death in the old life. Paul proclaims, but now when you are saved, you're released from the law. Why? Well, because the old you died. The law was a covenant over you, but you fulfilled it because, or it's fulfilled or not binding over you because you died. So now the law has no authority over you in the way that it did before. You do not relate to it in the same way. Just like the marriage covenant, how death frees a person from it, since we died with Christ, the the law is no longer something that we are under. We're no longer slaves to it. We're no longer uh, condemned by it. The the law never uh, stands over us and points out all of our failures anymore. We relate to it in a different way. Instead, he says we can relate to it in a brand new way in the way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. Again, he's not saying throw out the law. He's saying you relate to it differently in the way of the spirit, not the way of the written code. What does that mean? I moved my sister and brother-in-law from Vegas to Missouri uh, several years ago. On that trip, we loaded up vehicles and we made a 1,500-mile drive uh, from the thing that is Vegas, an interesting place. And on that trip, I experienced for the first time the beauty of 80-mile-per-hour speed limits. Right? Amen to that. It was like freedom. Man, I felt like Leonardo DiCaprio on the front of the Titanic, just those extra 10 miles an hour brought me to life. It was, it was great. Uh, but then the party ended. Why? Because I hit 70 mile per hour speed limits again. It felt like I was barely moving this prison of oppression that was 70 miles per hour over me. And as I entered the slower speed uh, limit, I, I decelerated a bit. I will not lie, I didn't go to 70. But I did slow down from where I was before because I may not have been at 80. Um, just, full, just being honest. Here, here's the thing, though. When I slowed down, I didn't do it because I wanted to. I, I didn't do it because I thought it was the right move for my heart. I didn't even do it because I thought the man who put the sign there was smart. I, I did it because I, I had to. Right? I, I did it because I did not want to get a ticket. I did not want to get in trouble. This is the essence of following something by the written code. I don't want to do it. Oh, I will, though. This is how we relate to the law before we're united with Christ, out of obligation. We may do it, but we sure don't want to. It's not what our heart wants to do. We don't even see value in doing it, but here's the reality. The consequences feel too high to ignore it, so we do it. So the law feels like those speed signs on the side of the road. They're just a nuisance. We just really wish that they weren't there. But when we're born again, when we're united with Christ, when we're married to to Christ instead of the the old body of Sid, something changes. We begin to see the laws of God like service to the spouse that we're deeply in love with. There aren't legal demands placed on our head by some cruel taskmaster. They're the outworking of a 
of a loving relationship with the Creator God who knows what's best. This is something only the Spirit can do. You will never follow the law because your heart wants to unless the Spirit has brought obedience from your heart into your life. Obedience unto life, not obedience out of dread through a written code. So there's, I believe out of the heart and I follow out of the heart or I follow because I have to and I don't want to get in trouble. This is the beauty. It's a follow because I want to and I trust you and I love you. Church, what if we saw obedience this way, a manifestation of love instead of a, a buzzkill or limitations or boundaries that we wish weren't there? Then he goes on more. Let's read at verse 7. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the, but when the command came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin seized an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. The people of God back then are just like the people of God now. They overreacted all the time. They uh, have a question, and Paul foresees this question ahead of time that they are going to ask, okay, well, if we needed free from the law, Paul, if you say the law was our captor, and you said before that sin was our captor, is the law actually sin? If we, rele- if we need a release from it, is the law actually a bad thing? We just run, get away from it. And Paul, again, no, by no means, which means like, hey, that's impossible. And then he elaborates more on what he means after that. What we need to see is Paul is saying that there's nothing wrong with the law of God. What's wrong is how we relate to the law. We need to understand rightly what the law is actually for. What's its purpose? What's its function? The main purpose of the law is to show us the character of sin. It shows us what things are sinful. And then hear me in the the kind of confusing part of those verses. And it also shows how sin works itself out in our lives and in our hearts. Like what sin kind of does as it pulls on us. Paul says, without the law, I would have had no idea what sin even is. We would be clueless without the law. He only knew that coveting was a thing because the law says, thou shalt not covet. It identifies, the law outlines the standards of God to show us where we're off. Sin literally means in the Bible to miss the mark. It shows us where the mark is so we can see when we're missing it. And James 1 tells us that the law is is like a mirror. It exposes where we miss the mark. It, It exposes our failures. It exposes where we're worshiping other things besides God. So it shows us what sin is. But in that, it also shows us the sin that lies within our heart before we even knew what sin was. Notice how he says sin sees the opportunity through the commandment. That is the, the commandment, do not covet, to, uh, to then produce all kinds of coveting. Uh, what he's saying is, is sin inside of us, what it does is it sees a command, right, before we're oblivious, and then our hearts see a command, a standard, and when we see it, the desire to break that command goes up. Like before it may have been neutral, then we see it like, oh, I want to break that thing. In verse 5, he says, our sinful passions get aroused by the law, by the standards, and they react by wanting to do the sin even more somehow. We see rules, and we just feel the need to break them. This can be seen from an early age, right? Have you ever told a kid, don't touch something? 
outlet, stove, electronics in the house. Immediately, what do, they, what do they do? They're drawn to it. It's like a magnet. They can't help them. They just have to touch it. See, before you said don't do it, they may have been like moderately interested, but the moment that you lay out the command, that you lay out the standard, it's like a moth of flame. Ah, they just, their little minds can't resist but grab it. I remember telling my oldest, Judah, not to touch the stereo receiver when he was really, really, really small. Uh, he, he would do it all the time, like hit all the buttons, mess up all the inputs, or, or this was a favorite. He'd take the dial and crank it all the way up. It was amazing. And, and so I would tell him over and over, hey, stop doing that. And one time specifically, I said, hey, Judah, do not touch the receiver. He turned around and he looked into my soul, like in my eyes, and he just hit everything that he could. You want to hear more? Kept eye contact with me and then started pretending to spank himself. Yeah. Yeah. As if to say it's worth it, old man. Come do your worst. Here's the problem. We don't lose that propensity as we get older. We hide it better. We lie about it. We know how to navigate it in socially acceptable ways. But the propensity to break the laws and stare things in the eyes and go, you won't touch me, it's still there. Paul is showing us that the law is good because it exposes the sin in our lives and it's good because it, it, it exposes the, the perversity in us at times to, to want to sin, to want to do something for no other reason besides it's wrong. Why do we do that? Why do we want to do something for no other reason besides knowing it's wrong at times? Well, internally, there's a declaration in our heart, you will not control me. I will not submit. Right? So at times, we'll do actions, not necessarily because we even want something, but just a declaration that screams out, independent, you won't tell me what to do. I'm in charge. You can't control me. I do what I want. See, the law comes to expose this evil inside the human heart. That's why he declares that the law is holy, righteous, and good. Why? Because we need that job done. We need to understand where we're missing the mark. We need to understand our propensity to just move at something and break laws at times. Now, if you'd say, because I know some of you are type A'ers and you're rule followers and you're here and then you're like, I never do that. Okay. Maybe you don't have the impulse to do something just because it's wrong. Maybe you don't want to just break the rules like others of us. Maybe you don't want to get out from under authority by breaking every rule, but maybe that impulse takes a different form in you. Right? There's the person who will just brazenly break it. Maybe you won't brazenly break every rule. You'll just mock them. You'll criticize every rule. You'll second guess every rule around you. You'll put down every authority source over you. If you always know better than everyone else and every rule placed over you, this is the exact spirit of rebellion that breaks the rules. It's just a different manifestation of it. It's the rebellion of Adam in the garden that says, I would do better in charge than you. Whether it's God or God placed, uh, God-given authorities over us, there's this root sin that says, I want to be in charge, and don't you dare tell me what to do. Whether you break the rules intentionally or mock the rules as your way, it's still going, I'd do better than you would. This is rebellion. 
Tim Keller talks about Paul's point is that the law cannot save us. That was never and could never be its purpose because it was given to sinners, but it can and must show us that we need to be saved. If you understand anything about the law, that's the point. It cannot save you, but it shows you that you needed to be saved, that we are sinners. Unless the law does its work, we will not look to Christ we uh, will be in denial about the depth and the nature of our sin. In other words, we need the law to convict us of sin before we can see our need for and have a desire for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It shows that there's a problem, and the beauty is Jesus goes, but I came to fix that problem. The law is what exposes this. So the law was never meant to be your Jesus. It was meant to show you that you needed Jesus. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might, be, might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do... What I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do, uh, not... For I do not do uh, the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. That was like a, a tongue twister. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I think our hearts will resonate with that. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Savior. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I know that's a little confusing the way Paul's writing there. I I think we can make sense of it. So another question is raised, uh, Paul, you say the law is good, but doesn't the law just bring death uh, since it arouses sin in us? Paul says, no, the law is not the killer, sin is. Sin is what brings death. The law doesn't create sin in you as much as it brings the sin out of you to the surface. It's like a snow globe. The law shakes our heart and our lives, and it reveals what was dormant or we couldn't see floating around. It brings it all to the surface. Again, the law doesn't hurt you. The sin inside of you sure does, though. So the law comes in as a gift to show you the sin that will bring you the fruit of death. Why? So that it can be put to death. Paul then shifts away from questions and into the struggle for every believer. He's, debent- he's ended the debate over if the law is good or if we need it by saying it is holy, it is righteous, it is good. Yes, we need it. Paul now starts talking about the duality inside of all who believe. Friends, believers, this is a, this is a very real thing that you will sense in your heart and the enemy, the convictor, will do as much as he can with this sense. There's this thing inside of us, this duality 
This is, I do not understand my own actions at time. I'm a, a bundle of paradoxes, theologians have called it, because at times we want to do, or we don't do what we want to do, and we end up doing what we hate. Meaning the, the goodness and the, and the righteousness that we want inside now as believers because God has transformed our inner being and we want to do good and we want to be righteous at times, we self-sabotage and we're not able to do it. Right? I, I want good and then we fall flat on our face. And the sin that we want to avoid ends up being the thing that we're planted dead smack in the, the center of. This, this, I, didn't, I don't want to do that, but I, I, I did it again. This is overwhelming, it's confusing, it causes frustration, and it causes shame, because though we want to do good, there are times, not all the time, we just don't feel like we have the power to carry it out. Now, make a note, this is not always, right? For the person who's like, yeah, I'm like that all the time, sin every day, all the time. The duality, like, no, that's not what that means. There is a tension, though. There's a tension there that it always tries to creep up on you. The point here is there's two people battling inside of us at times. There's the new life in the spirit trying to square off with remnants of the old self that are still trying to drag you down into sin. There's the one who wants to follow Jesus and the one that doesn't, the one who wants to follow you. Then the question arises, is this duality? I want to do that, and I ended up doing the opposite, and I want to avoid this, and I fell right into it, and, and sometimes I want to follow Jesus, and I want to follow myself. Internally, when that goes on long enough, here's the question. Which one's me? Like, which one's real? Which one's the imposter? All this imposter syndrome of who, who am I and what am I? You begin to ask, like, is the real one the, the, the alive in Christ one, or is that the imposter, and the real one is the, the other one? Is it the one who wants to do good or the one who wants to disobey? And Paul plums this further. He says, I find it to be a law. He's trying to be funny. That's a play on words. That when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. It's right there too. You feel that tension, don't you? Because I, I, I now delight in the law of God and I want to obey from the heart. Yet my mind, my flesh want to go the other direction just randomly, so often, there's this war raging inside between my new heart and my, and my flesh. Inside, and he even says inside my members, which means in my, my, my body, which you could dive into a whole lot of other connotations to desire and everything like that. There's this war in my body that's fiercely taking place and skirmishes between my, my new self and Christ and my old self break out all the time. And he's like, I hate it. I can't stand it. And he begins to, to lament. What's he saying? I can't stand that I struggle this much. I hate it. This is the Apostle Paul. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And he's wrestling with the sin that remains inside of himself still. Wrestling with the fact that as a believer, he still struggles more than he would like. Wrestling with the reality that that his mind is a war zone that fights with just difficult and hard things. And sometimes there's good thoughts and then there's terrible thoughts and there's inner voices that try and pull him towards sin and, and sometimes voices that try to pull him towards righteousness. And, and when he's dealing with this tension and so frustrated, going, I wish it were gone, he says, wretched man am I. There's something dark and filthy and nasty still inside of there and I, and I hate it. I'm so far from perfect, so, so uh, susceptible to sin and death still. Yes, Jesus has saved me, but why are those things still there? There's a belief among many young believers that when they marry, things are going to get easier. Lust is going to go away. 
desires will be pure, happy, never cause an issue again. Right, this, this hope that the battle of desire will be gone just once you say, I do. Yet they say, I do, and all the dysfunctional desires are still right there the night, the night afterwards. Like, oh, still pulling at them, still begging them to do wrong. It's this hope that they're, it, at one day it'll, it just, it'll be done. I won't struggle like I used to. In some ways, for a believer who stops trying to earn salvation through good works and submits to Jesus and accepts in faith the perfect work of Christ for them, this same uh, kind of scenario emerges in the heart. We can expect for things to get easy. I'm saved now. As if when we say, I do to Christ, and we begin to follow him, that it's just going to be like a magic pill. It's going to fix me completely. I'm just going to be happy and pure and honest and holy and righteous and good. It's just automatically going to happen. Like, yes. But again, the scenario doesn't, it doesn't play out exactly like that. It's not easy. It's not automatic. Yes and amen, Christ can expel horrific things and change our lives greatly. I never, ever, ever want to downplay that. But it doesn't mean once you're saved, you can kind of sit on the sidelines and just absorb through osmosis, like easy, automatic obedience for the rest of your life. Because though the war for your soul may be won by Christ Jesus already, which we should say amen to, the war for your heart and your actions and your affections and your mind rages on. Right? This war, this bloody, nasty battle remains on through the duality of the new you and remnants of the old you, through the ways of God and the kingdom of God and the ways of the world around you. It's still there on this side of eternity. This is one of the biggest takeaways that we cannot ignore from this text. If you are a believer, the text is calling you, saying, please wake up and understand there's a war. A war of divergent desires in you and outside of you. A war of the spirit and the flesh. The moment you forget that there is a battle, here's the problem. It's the moment that you're probably about to get kind of trucked in life. You, you don't get to say, time out, I'm tired right now. It, it just keeps going on. This is why Ephesians ends with the section of the armor of God. Here's the problem with that section. We, we did little weird things on felt boards as children, and we believe that that's just a song, and you had some guy dress up, and that's all that that meant. No, it was serious. Arm yourself. Why would you arm yourself? Because there's a fight. Salvation doesn't stop the battle. It places you dead smack in the middle of it and opens your eyes to the reality that there is one. This is the understanding. See, we have to stop asking, what can I get away with? What's the bar? What's the minimum uh, need of, of things to do to be a Christian? And instead ask, how do I fight well? How do I arm myself? How, how? If this battle on this side of eternity is not going to end, how in the world do I arm myself to fight well and prepare? And that ripes back to the question over why do we still need the law? Even as believers, the law teaches us what things we need to fight against. And hear me. It means what things you need to fight against in you, in your community, not Facebook and outside and other junk like that. The law teaches you what things you need to wage war against inside of you. Why? Because it, it continually exposes sin. Remember, that's its job. 
It doesn't save you. It exposes sin. So we keep going to the law and the words of God to show us where the mark is and where we miss it. And when we do miss it, we pray and ask King Jesus to help us fight better. For the Holy Spirit to show us what's true, to place our belief back in Jesus. The law is what shows us what's sin, which brings death in us. And that's a gift because it shows us what we need to wage war against. Again, why? Because sin brings forth death. There's a functional question there. Do you think sin really brings death or is it just things that God won't let you do? The Bible says it brings death. It hurts you. It destroys the people around you. So what does the law do? It peels back the layers of your heart like an onion before the Lord and it helps continue to have you give more and more and more facets of your heart to him. Why? So he can help you and free you from some of the sins that remain. So yes, there's going to be a struggle that, that rages on forever, but here's the beauty. You have the ability to fight back. You have the ability to fight sin, to identify it, to ask the Spirit and Jesus to help you so you're not there just getting destroyed all the time. We need the law to expose things and show us what to fight against. For this reason, the law is super helpful. It helps us see straight what to fight. What if we stopped fighting the things that didn't actually bring death and fought the things that the Bible says does bring death? Stopped wasting energies on fighting battles that shouldn't be our mountains to die upon and began to fight the sin inside instead. Oh, I think we'd be so much happier. If we back up, this is why we also believe in community here. Right? He's not talking about community there, but I think we can make the connections. Here's the reality. Fellow believers who dig into the law and the words of God with you will be great warriors to fight alongside you. You can't see your blind spots. The people in your mission community can, though. See, the people alongside of you can defend you and you can defend them with the Spirit. Because right? here's, the, here's the call. We're to become disciples the ones who keep learning and keep fighting over and over. So as the, the, the people of God gather together and read the word of God and they begin to dig into it, they can see their own sin and, and fight it with the neighbor around them and they can defend other people and give them the ability to speak into their life. This is how we fight well. You'll never fight well alone. This idea of solo Christianity, I don't need the church, I don't need the other people, it's rebellious and it'll get you destroyed in real life. We need each other and the words of God to show us how to live. Why? Because there's a battle raging around us. As we get ready to land the plane on chapter 7, so much more could be said here, but the overarching message I think is clear. Nobody gets so far in their walk that sin doesn't pop up anymore. You'll never get that far on the side of eternity. Nobody gets so far in their walk that they, do, that they don't struggle anymore. We will be ever-growing, ever-transforming from now until Christ returns. Why? Because we're following him the whole way. So what does this mean? The battle is going to rage on until King Jesus comes back and ends it for good. Until the, the, the picture of Jesus in Revelation with eyes of, of fire comes back and ends it, there will be a war until then. So I think what this chapter tells us is if you've fallen asleep on the battlefield, Right? If you're not trying to fight back, if, you, if you're just not paying attention to, to where you struggle and, and your mind is on a million other things, I think this text tries to, to, to kind of shake us in a loving way and say, beloved, there's still a war going on. Rise up in Christ and let him help you. Fill yourself up with the word, with other brothers and other sisters to, to build you up. 
and with prayer because it's your most powerful weapon of warfare. Begin to fight back, not to earn your salvation or, or make daddy love you, but begin to fight well to walk in the beauty of what has been done. To walk in the fullness of what Christ has won for you will take fighting. See, there's a difference between union and communion. Your union is the the connection with Christ that happens at the moment of salvation. Nothing will ever take that from you because God guards it. But your communion, the experience of your faith, how it feels, the facets of it, if you feel close to God or not, or if you're getting trucked in sin or not, that will greatly change depending on how much you fight. The call in this is to fight so the beauty of your communion can be great. Well, that reality can be hard to hear that we will struggle, that struggle is normal. Right? Everything around you is telling you that we sh- we're so far along that if we get the right people and all this, we shouldn't struggle and all this other stuff. Paul is telling us, no, no, that's all lies. Struggle is normative, but here's the beauty at the end of the chapter. Right? When he's in the middle, this is a dark and dirty lament. Who will deliver me from this body of sin? Wretched, filthy man am I. Like, this is deep. He answers the question, who will deliver us? Thanks be to God, Jesus will. See, when you're battling and trying to follow Jesus and you fall short, here's the beauty. There's still grace for you, right? There's still mercy for you. If, if you have a more sensitive conscience, and you, you might just need to remember that Jesus is perfect already. We just celebrated the beauty of Easter together, that he has came and paid it all and risen from the dead. So we do not have to be perfect because he already did that. Right? It's not your failure or a sign of your weakness or a sign that you're not saved that, that sin is still a struggle for you. Let that give you peace when you get too frustrated with yourself. Again, there's caveats. If you're not fighting at all and every sin gets you, that's a huge problem. But for sensitive conscience, so you just fall and go, man, I screwed up everything again. No, no, no. King Jesus still paid for that. Remember the realities that we find in chapter 8. Here, here's the beauty. The, probably the, the, my favorite, you can't call a certain chapter in the Bible great, I don't, or the best, I don't think. It's like telling your kid that you love one better than the other. But We're hitting Romans 8. It's probably the, it's probably the best chapter in the Bible. What is it going to show us? One day the war will be over. Christ will... In, Wipe away every tear and it'll show us the beauty of what we get. One day, the struggle for divergent desires, the war inside of you won't happen anymore. The, the, the wanting to do right and not being able to, it won't happen anymore. King Jesus will, will fully put back together all things that have been broken by sin. This is how the story ends. And it's not a question like, this is how the story ends? This is how the story ends. The war will be over and a faithful, powerful, just, and kind Savior will rule, and sin will no longer be a thing to fight. Everything will be perfect. Until that day, the message here is pick up your weapons and let's push back darkness together. Friends, let's be about the Father's business. Let's fight against the ways of the world and see glimpses of the kingdom of God come to earth. Remember when, when, when people were asking Jesus, how do I pray? And Jesus says, okay, uh, Father, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. The beauty is when we get serious about fighting, we can see glimpses and shadows of the kingdom of God born more and more and more around us. What if we got more serious about fighting, not in a legalistic, we're better than everyone way, 
but in just a way that says, I want to fight back against that inner struggle in me. We saw the beauty of God's work happen more around us. Believer, if you forgot that there is a battle, and maybe out of frustration or shame or maybe just cyclically, maybe you're just tired because COVID has trucked you over two years. You kind of find that you've stopped fighting and you put your faith on autopilot and just like, I'll just persevere and I'll deal with it another day. And you find because of that a distant heart. But your affections for Jesus aren't strong. The spirit isn't working or churning and just the, the beauty of your faith isn't happening at the way that it was before. Sin is just heavier and just faith feels down and dead. Today can be your first action of warfare to fight back. Just confess that to God. Confess what he already knows. Tell him, hey man, I've got twisted up somehow. I don't know if it was just other failures. I forgot the gospel and shamefully just walked away because I thought you were angry at me or I got distracted by the world and a million other things and, and they're just bigger to me. Now tell him what he already knows and ask him to help you draw close to him again. Speak to him, Father, my heart's just cold. I don't even know why. I'm angry or it's distant. And ask for your help, Father, I need you. Here's the beauty. When you do, the Spirit will be faithful to come and help you. We, this is why we end with songs afterwards, because we want to give you time to pray and process and confess to the Lord whatever needs to be done. So if you've not picked up your weapons of warfare and maybe just things have been harder and heavier, the first step, confess what's going on in your heart and see Jesus help and draw near to you. And I would pray that you do that today. Man, you guys can come back up. We will take communion 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, the beauty of being able to take every week is to remember whether you've stopped fighting or your heart has been distant or it's been distracted or sin has pulled heavier. The beauty is if your faith is in Jesus, his body and his blood was still broken and shed for you. So you can come and take knowing that you don't need to beat yourself down in shame. Come and take that Jesus paid it all already. Your shame is wiped away. He has made you white as snow in him. You get to take and just remind your soul what the world and the enemy wants to take from you, that Jesus has done it all, and you can worship in light of that. My hope is that you would, that your heart would be filled by the reality of what Jesus has done for you. He's been so good to you. You don't have to be a member here to take. We just ask that your faith be in Jesus. But I pray as we, we do these, I think there's three or four last songs, that if there's some praying and some contending you need to do, spend the time in prayer. If you need to sit down and pray, sit down and pray. Ask the Lord that he would work and then take in confidence knowing the beauty of what Jesus has done. He knew this moment would come. Even if you're disappointed and tired in yourself, he goes, hey, I, I'm not upset I died for you. Come and draw near to me again. There's still a sacrifice. The hope is that you would see that and we would battle it well and contend well, even in divergent desires. Would you stand with me? Father, I pray you draw near to us. Lord Spirit, help us. I pray that we do not hear a message of 
do better, try harder, or legalism. Lord, I just pray that we see the beauty that you have equipped us with your spirit and your word and your people so that we can fight back against the ways of the world in our heart and around us. Let us see that. Lord, I pray that we would be emboldened in the proper way to take more seriously the affections in our heart, the things going around, that we would not dread the law or your words, but we would value them. They'd be sweet like honey to our lips. Why? Because they draw us closer to you as they identify the sources of death and sin in us, Lord. Lord, would you do your work for hearts that are distant? For whatever reason it be, Holy Spirit, would you draw near to us? We ask that you do a fresh work. Soften the hard corners of our heart. Draw us near to you. Let us see the beauty that we are your beloved. We are your sons and your daughters, that you are loving and merciful and kind, and you're not surprised by any of the things that we fall into. Holy Spirit, bind up our wounds, embolden us in you. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that would fight well, and we'd begin to push back darkness to see lives, to see others come to know you and find the freedom in you, Lord. Give us a deeper communion with you and a desire to walk out in the world with the beauty of what you've done. We pray that in your name. Be glorified today, Father. We love you.